It is an amazing gift that you have given us, our Father. This book that we hold in our hands. Many of us have many books. Many of us have bookshelves that are overrun by books. But this book, above every other book that we own, is a singularly unique book. Nothing compares with this book. For it is divinely written. It is without error. It is your eternal self-revelation to us. And while this book does not contain everything that can be known about you, Everything that we need to know about you is in this book. It is a book that will lead us to you, to salvation, to sanctification, to glorification. It is our life from beginning to end. It is a revelation not only of yourself, it is a revelation of ourselves For you have exposed us for what we are without you. You have graced us with the revelation of what we can be in Christ. And you have given us a road map for how we might live under the authority of the Spirit by this book for your glory. It is a transformative book. It is a living book. Would you change us this morning, Father, by this book? Not only would you give us grace to hear it and to worship you by it, but would you transform us by it? We say this often, but it is true every day of our lives. We need the transformation that only this book will bring. So will you begin or continue the transformation we need from this book this morning? We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen. We live in a dark world. We live in a world where people are blind to the reality of God, the devastation of sin, and blind to the truth of Christ and the truth of Christ's righteousness. We live in a world where morally blind people tell seeing Uh, morally seeing people that the morally seeing people are blind and cannot see. We live in a world where Satan has blinded the minds and hearts of the unbelieving so that they cannot see the light of the truth of God. We live in a world where believers too get ensnared by the darkness and fall prey to the wiles of Satan. He devours them by making them blind to the truth. We live in a world where our great enemy Satan would not only blind us, but he would destroy us. We live in a world where the Bible is increasingly irrelevant. We live in a church world where the Bible is increasingly deemed irrelevant. A number of years ago, I was on a sabbatical that the elders had granted to me, and for two months I was going to go to different churches to discover what what was what other churches were doing and and how they were growing and and how they the the, the the word of god was impacting their 
their lives. My wife warned me what I was about to run into. And uh, she, in fact, refused to go with me because she knew what I was going to run into because of the conversation she had been having with um, people at our children's school and at places like the YMCA. I was blissfully ignorant. So one Sunday I walked into a local church that was growing and expanding and developing and and seeming to make a significant impact on the community. And and as the pastor came to the pulpit to give the sermon, or when he came to the, to the front, there wasn't a pulpit actually, but when he came to the front, he opened the Scriptures and he read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and I thought, this is... This is magnificent. What a glorious passage. And I began thinking about how he might begin to unfold it and was anticipating what he would say about this passage. He finished reading verse 3 and he closed his Bible and then he turned around and he walked to the back corner of the stage about 30 feet away where there was a music stand and he took his Bible and he placed his Bible on the music stand and then walked back to center stage where he became the story of the day. And he regaled us with all kinds of stories and he had props and all kinds of things to make the the story seem exciting and interesting and motivating, all without the power and authority of the Word of God. That church would tell you that they believe in the authority of the Word of God. They would tell you that they believe in the inerrancy of the Scriptures. But the way they do ministry tells us that what they really believe is that the personal stories... And props are far more powerful to change people's lives than the Word of God is. The Bible is irrelevant. In this dark world and in a church where the Bible is increasingly diminished, where will we turn for help and hope? For 40 years, Grace Bible Church has turned to the Bible. But is the Bible still adequate for the next 10 years? Never mind the next 40 years or the next 60 years. How, how will we survive in this dark world? And this morning we're going to consider the second of three great themes that we're considering these weeks as we think about our anniversary. Last week we thought about grace. Today we think about Bible. Next week we think about church. And we're going to come to this great passage focused on the Scriptures, Psalm 119. And in this stanza, verses 105 to 112, we will find this simple truth. Be faithful to God's faithful word. We will be reminded as we make our way through this passage of the faithfulness of God's word and because God's word is faithful, that we should be faithful also to that word. And in fact, we're going to find in this stanza four circumstances, four times to be faithful to God and His Word. When when should we be faithful to God's Word? When should we say, this Word is adequate for me? When should we say, I am committed to this Word regardless of what is going on around me? In four different times, in four different circumstances, the psalmist points to God's faithfulness and our need to be faithful to this Word. The first circumstance, the first time that we are to be faithful to God and His Word is given to us in verses 105 and 106, and it is this. When you have moral questions, be faithful to God's Word. When you have moral questions, be faithful to God's Word. Psalm 105 may be one of the most well-known verses in this psalm, and it's often explained as giving 
uh, direction and guidance for people's daily decisions in life. And, and it is certainly true that the Bible does give us directions for, for how we are to live and the kinds of decisions we make on a daily basis. But when the psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, in verse 105, he's not talking about the direction that we receive from the Word of God on a daily basis. He's talking about the direction we receive when we live in a morally dark world. And we, we can understand that even when he says, we need the lamp of the Word. We need the light of the world. Word. Why do we need light from the Word of God? Because we are surrounded by darkness. And we are surrounded by a particular kind of darkness. We are surrounded by a darkness that is perverse and evil. Just scan up to verse 101 and be reminded of what he says there. He says, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I am surrounded by evil. I am surrounded by darkness. And if I am to survive in this moral darkness and when I have moral questions and when I have queries about which direction I will go in morality, I need the light of the Word to shine on my life to give me direction for those moral questions. And notice he says, the Word is a lamp to my feet. Uh, the, the word feet is actually not a plural in the, in the Hebrew text. It's actually a singular. Your lamp is a word to my foot. And it has the sense of not just the foot, but your word is a lamp to each foot that I have. So wherever I place my foot, wherever either of my feet ever traverses, your lamp is adequate to guide me so I don't wander off into darkness and perversity. Your word is adequate for every circumstance where my foot might travel. There is nothing that is beyond the scope of ability to address my moral needs and my queries, what is right and what is wrong and what does God expect of me in this moment. The light, um, the writer also says, is given on the path. It is a light to my path. That is, it is a light to the course and the direction of my life. The, the scriptures provi- provide light to keep us going on a direction that will take us to God. The word pathway often refers to the courseway or the direction of one's life. And, and the writer here is saying that we have in this word the direction that goes the right way to keep us again from wandering off into darkness. Scripture provides a light so that we don't deviate. And notice that this is personal direction. Notice it is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now it is true that the Scriptures give moral direction for nations and people and cultures But that's not what the scripture writer has in mind here. He has in mind not just how should our world function morally, not just how should governments function morally, but how should I live when I am tempted, when, when I have a desire to go astray, how should I respond? What does, what does God demand of me and expect of me 
It helps me to navigate through the temptations and attractions that are enticing to me. It reveals my heart. It reveals my inclinations. And it provides hopefulness for me. This is about about me and my moral decisions and my pursuit of righteousness. Now what does Scripture do to reveal the moral dangers of life? Notice he says in verse 105, It is a lamp to my feet. The word lamp refers to a little clay vessel uh, that was common in Israel. It was about, frankly, about the size of my hand and shaped roughly this way, kind of a, a cup shape, kind of oblong, and it would be about as deep as as the cup in my hand is right here. And it, And at the end, it would be kind of pinched together so that there would be a trough that would come out the end. And in that little trough, they, the the... Um, the individual would lay a wick and that wick would come down into the bottom of this cup and that cup would be filled with olive oil. He'd light the wick and and the wick would consume the olive oil and burn and provide light for him. It was, it was essentially one candle power. It was equivalent to a candle that we might use today. And, and the psalmist says... The Word is is a lamp to my feet, so when I carry it, I have enough light to see where I'm going so I don't go astray and wander into darkness. But it's not just... It's not just an individual lamp that gives individual direction for me, but it also, he says, is a light to my path. This is, this is a broader and more penetrating light. And rather than a candle, this is, this is a floodlight that, that permeates an entire region. So I not only see right in front of me, but I see all around me. Everything is illuminated so that I can see the light of truth and know where to go. Oh, my friends... The Scripture shines as a light on that which is dark and black and false. And and we live in a dark world. And in that dark world, this light has shone. And even, even the smallness of one candlelight disseminates the darkness or disseminates or gets rid of, dispels the darkness and, and moves the darkness away so that, so that where there's even one lamp of light, there is no darkness. And we can walk in the light of, of that word and that power. And the power of the word is it reveals the darkness of the world for what it is And my friends, only the Scriptures will do that. Only the Scriptures will guide us through the maze that the world has made of truth and righteousness. We need this book. And our privilege as a church is to stand for the truth. This is, this is our fundamental role. So Paul tells Timothy, 1st Timothy chapter 3, that the chiller, that the church stands as a pillar and support of the truth. That's our, that's our responsibility to stand for the truth. And friends, this is, this is what we have done for 40 years. We've just said, this is the truth. And we've tried to say it with grace, and we've tried to say it with gentleness, and we've tried to say it with accuracy, but this is what drives and compels us, and it drives and compels us because only the truth of God can dispel the darkness of the world. And because the truth of God reveals 
moral truth and because it reveals reality and reveals the pervasiveness of the world and the darkness of the world, notice how the psalmist responds to it. Verse 106, I have sworn and I will confirm. I, I, I've sworn. This is, this word is for him personally. It's for my feet and for my path, but it, but it also then elicits a personal response from him. It's, this isn't just a response for the world. This is, this is my response. This is, this is how I will relate to the Word of God. He says, I have sworn. This is, this is a pledge. This is an oath that the psalmist is taking. And it, and it pictures, in a sense, that the psalmist is standing before a judge with God as, at his side, and he says, as God is my witness, I take this oath. And not only does he says, I have sworn, but he says also, I will confirm it. And that, that simply means something like, my statement stands. Uh, I, I have a commitment, and I am resolute to that commitment. I am unwavering in it. In fact, the, the two phrases, I have sworn and I will confirm, it probably should be taken to just simply mean one idea. And that idea is that I have given an unwavering promise and oath. I've made an unwavering commitment. And notice to what he has committed, that I will keep your righteous ordinances. His commitment is to keeping God's word. His commitment is to obedience. He is resolved to follow God's standard, God's ordinances, what, what God has decreed, how God has talked about the world. That's, that's what he will follow. But notice that the psalmist doesn't just say that I will keep your ordinances. It would be perfectly fine for him to do that. It would be, it would, it, in some sense, it would not lessen his commitment at all. But notice that he says your righteous ordinances. In other words, your ordinances that reveal who you are. Your ordinances that that demonstrate your righteousness. Your ordinances that relate your righteousness in in contrast to the unrighteousness of the world. In other words, everything about you is contained in your ordinances and your revelation and that's what I'm following because it's the right way to go. So, He said by your righteous ordinances, you are faithful and your word is faithful and because your word is faithful, that's what I'm going to keep and that's what I'm going to do. Your word is faithful and I will follow your word. Let me just draw a couple of implications from these two verses. One is notice that the psalmist is living a purposeful life. He's being intentional with his actions No one, I think I said this last week, no one is holy by accident. Holiness doesn't come accidentally. Holiness comes by a resolute commitment to follow through under the authority of the Spirit of God what God has said in His Word. Holiness comes and sanctification comes because we have said, God has spoken and I will act and I will follow no matter the cost. Notice, that he is intentional, he is purposeful, and friends, this this is where we need to leave. This is where we need to live. Do, do I let the word of God tell me every day what I need, and then do I have a commitment to follow through what it says to me every day? This this is where sanctification comes. This is where holiness comes from from a desire and a commitment 
and a resoluteness to say, I will obey. Another implication of this verse is that the Word of God has been given to change us. The Word of God, the Word of God is given to us to keep us on the right pathway. The Word of God is to keep us, is given to us to keep us from wandering the inclinations of the flesh and wandering off into darkness. The Word of God is given to us so that it sets our course for life and that when we follow it, our trajectory changes. It changes, frankly, everything about us. And making a vow does not make us holy. Listening to the Word of God and reading the Word of God doesn't make us holy. But making a vow to hear the Word of God to obey the Word of God will produce holiness in us. So we want to read and learn and then do what the Word of God says by the power of the Spirit of God that has been given to us. When you have moral questions, when you have moral questions, be faithful to God's Word. And friends, there are more moral questions in this world than we have ever seen. And they are attacking us. And it's for us to determine what does God have to say and then follow through. This is what He has said. That's where I'm going. Is there a cost to that? Yes. There is a massive cost to it, and I believe for the church there will be an increasingly great cost to it. But friends, how can we do anything else? This is God's holy word. When you have a moral question, when you have a moral dilemma, when you have, when you have a moral debate, be faithful to God's word. It alone will dispel the darkness of the world around you. There's another time to be faithful to that's God's word, and that's when you have circumstantial trials. When you have circumstantial trials, be faithful to God's word. Our, our need in this world is not only for understanding the moral direction to go, how can I be righteous in this world of darkness, but, but also in the personal circumstances of life, just the way we live. Notice what he says in verse 107, I am exceedingly afflicted. Now, if you go back in this psalm, you will find multiple times when the psalmist has pointed to the fact that he is afflicted, that he faces oppression, that he finds people that are persecuting him, that he, that he just lives in a world that is really, really difficult. But here he's not emphasizing so much that he's being afflicted, but he is emphasizing the fact that he is exceedingly afflicted. He's emphasizing how extensively he is suffering. In fact, that word exceedingly has the sense of he is, he is bowed down under the heavy load. It is, it has pushed him over. He is weighed down and overwhelmed and overburdened. There is, my friend, suffering in this world and it is unjust and it is hard and we need comfort. And we need help. We are exceedingly afflicted. I, I pulled up my file on suffering on my computer uh, earlier this week and I saw ar- articles about um, an amputee that had a quadruple amputation. All of his limbs were amputated. And dementia and birth defects and cancer and depression and war and Ebola and untimely deaths and blindness. 
This is the world in which we live. Someone has well said, if, if we could see for even one part of one second all of the suffering that inhabits the seven billion people on this earth, we could not stand the weight of the suffering that is in this world. A number of years ago, I heard someone say that every seat, every person in every seat in every sanctuary is a suffering person. That's true. The suffering is different, but everyone suffers. To be alive is to suffer. Trials are normal and trials are pervasive and and suffering is extensive and it is for everyone in this fallen world. For 40 years, we have seen suffering in each other. We've, We've ministered to one another in the midst of suffering. The question, my friends, is not whether we will suffer. The question is, where will we turn when we suffer? And the temptation is to ignore or to attempt to run away from suffering and difficulty. The, the, the temptation is to say, I, I, if, if I just do this, I can avoid it. I was, I was just reading in my, my daily Bible reading this week, Jeremiah chapter 38, and Jeremiah prophesies to Zedekiah, the, the king of Judah, and he says, Babylon is coming, and Babylon is going to take you into captivity. And he unfolded all kinds of hard things that were going to happen to Zedekiah. And Zedekiah says in uh, Jeremiah 38, verse 24, essentially this. He says, shh, don't tell anybody. As if not telling anybody will make it go away and he can avoid it and it's not going to be a problem. No, friends, we, we live in a suffering world. The, the question is not, will I suffer? The question is, where will I turn in the midst of my suffering? Look what the psalmist does. I'm exceedingly, I'm bowed down with my affliction. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Revive me is a request. It, it is a request to say, will you make me alive? Will you bring me to life? And... And if you are to bring me to life, it will be according to your word. It will be only through your word, through the scriptures, that I will experience the life that I need. And and will you do that for me? Oh, friends, he is leaning on God in the midst of his suffering. He isn't running away from God. He's not saying, well, I'm suffering, so God must not care. No, he says, I am suffering. I must run to the only one who cares and the only one who will give me life. He doesn't not only asks for help, notice what else he does, verse 108. Oh, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord. And there were a number of offerings in the Old Testament that were mandatory, but there were also a few offerings that were called free will offerings. That is, they were offerings that the worshiper could give that were not mandatory. They didn't have to give them. So he could be a faithful worshiper and a faithful follower of God by by not offering those gifts. And and the 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 songwriter, the psalmist here says, I am giving you a free will offering. This is not because I am compelled, but I'm giving you an offering, God in the midst of my affliction, an offering that comes from my lips. What is the offering that comes from his lips? It is his praise. 
It is his gratitude. It is his thanksgiving. It is the reflection of his dependence on God. It is the giving of praises and thanksgivings that are not required, but even in the midst of his suffering, he enjoys to give it. In the midst of his trials, he not only will not curse God, but he praises God and affirms God's goodness. When I was a child, um, I was taught by my parents to say thank you. Son, what do you say? Thank you. Son, what do you say? Thank you. Son, what do you say? Thank you. You know, and like 10,000 times, it's finally ingrained in my, in my mind that I always need to say thank you. Now, there are certain seasons of life when it's particularly easy to, to say thank you, like at Christmas time, a six-year-old sees what he thinks is a mountain of gifts, and, and it's easy to say thank you. But on the day when you come to the dinner table and mom has fried liver for you, whole different category. Son, say thank you for dinner. <laughs> Seriously, Dad? <laughs> and the psalmist says, I've gotten what is hard. I've gotten what is painful. And I will give thanks with my mouth. I will praise God with my lips. He wants the words of his lips to please the Lord. Notice what else he says in this verse. Not only accept the free will offerings of my mouth, but also and teach me your ordinances. I, I, I need to be taught by you. Th- this is dad saying, son, what do you say? Thank you. Son, what do you say? Thank you. I need to be taught. I need to be trained. I need this Scripture. I need these ordinances, these directions, these counsels to shape and direct my life. I need to be taught that. It doesn't come naturally. And so he says, I'm in the midst of my affliction. I am offering you my praise, but at the same time I'm asking, would you continue to teach me so that I can follow after you? Notice how the psalmist has demonstrated faithfulness in these verses. He has prayed I need help. Would you revive me? Would you, would you bring me to life? He has praised. You are good. And he has petitioned. Teach me. And in all these ways, he is saying, my life is hard, but I will turn to God and I will not reject him. When my circumstances are heavy, I will turn to the only faithful one and his word who can sustain me. Friends, our life is hard. And the temptation is at times to, to put down our Bibles and say, I quit, I give up. Well, friends, this is the only book that will help you. David, I don't remember when this happened. It was, I think, in between one of your trips to Papua New Guinea in the first years when you were going over there, maybe after the first four years when you were there. And you came back and, and um, the work in Deem Sisi was hard. And we've had many conversations about the hardness of those days. And I know the temptation is to give up, to wash your hands. And I remember you saying publicly from this pulpit, recounting the words of Jesus in John chapter 6. Jesus says in John 6 verse 65, For this reason I have said to you, 
that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. And as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. This is, this is the outer crowd. This is, this is the masses that were following Jesus. And they heard a hard saying and they said, forget it, we quit. And so Jesus turns then to the twelve when everyone else is wandering off. You do not want to go away also, do you? And I'd never seen this in this way until you pointed it out. And Simon Peter answered him, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Yeah, it's hard. But where else will I go? Where else will I turn? What else will I embrace? There's... Life is difficult and the weight, I'm weighed down. I'm bowed over with them. But, but can I go anywhere else but to the one who has the words of eternal life? Now, friends, that's where, that's where we go when we have circumstantial trials. We go to this word that will keep us and help us. There's a third time to be faithful And it is when you have relational persecution, be faithful to God's Word. We live in a difficult world. The psalmist indicates that again in verse 109. He says, My life is continually in my hand. He's referring to the fact he's trying to hold on to his life. He's grasping at life. He's trying to keep it. And it's... It's like it's just so slippery and his hands are so slippery. He can't hold on to the permanence of his life that he wants and it just keeps sliding through his hand. And he is, he is aware. Notice he says, my life is continually in my hand. Every day he is aware that his life is tenuous. Every day he lives with danger. Every day he is weighed down by the difficulty and the tenuousness and the evasiveness of the permanence of life. Why does he say that? Verse 110, because the wicked have laid a snare for me. And here he's using a hunting image of a, a hunter who has laid out some ropes underneath a tree and when an animal goes through it those ropes get pulled together and snaps that animal up into the tree and the animal is caught there's no getting out and he is pointing to the fact not that there is not that there are moral dangers in the world that's true there are moral dangers in the world but notice what he says he says the wicked have laid a snare for me there are people who are working for my destruction There are people who want harm against me. There there are people who not only want my failure, there are people who are working for my failure. They not only love to see me fail, they are designing opportunities for me to fail. And what are you going to how are you going to respond then? It's not just life is hard, but 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 the this mass of people is against me. What will you do? Verse 109, I do not forget your law. I do not forget your law. The temptation 
when we are suffering, the temptation when people are against us is to say, I forget, just, just like Diane said, right? Goes into the tornado shelter, takes the Bible with her because she doesn't want her Bible destroyed, and then comes out of the tornado shelter and the Bible stays in the tornado shelter for months. That's, that's the tendency of all of our hearts. Yeah, God has spoken, but because of the burden of the day, we just get wrapped up and focus on the burden of the day and we forget what God has said. And notice that the psalmist says, I do not forget your law. This is not just something that happens accidentally. This is his purpose. This is his intention. This is the way he has structured his life. He's intentionally working to not forget the Word of God. There are not many sentences I remember from my seminary career, but there, there's one sentence that I, I suppose I shall always remember. The president of our school said in one chapel one day, I have no idea what the rest of the sermon was about. I have no idea what the passage he was preaching was from was. I, I remember nothing about it except this one sentence He said, never give up in the dark what God has revealed in the light. In the darkness of the day, in in the perversity of morality and in the attacks of those who are against you, don't give up what God has revealed about Himself in His Word in the light. And he was addressing the very issue that the psalmist is talking about here. When people attack us, the temptation is to say, I quit, I give up. No friend. No, remember, be purposeful to remember God's word every day. Notice what else he says. Yet I have not, verse 110, gone astray from your precepts. He's not wandered. He's not drifted away. Now I want you to notice something very particular in this verse. I read this, I don't know how many times before I saw it this week. The wicked have laid a snare for me, so they have entrapped me from obeying you. Is that what it says? The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. So the wicked have set up a trap for me, but he is saying, if I wander away, it's not the fault of the wicked, it is the fault of my own heart. It is I who have wandered away. It is, it is I who have ignored. It is I who have drifted. And he is addressing the very thing that the hymn writer talks about. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is, this is the tendency of the heart. And the problem is not that we are in difficult circumstances. Our problem is not that people are against us. Our problem is not that we are suffering. Our problem is not that people are enticing us with, with, with things that will, will draw us away. Our problem is our own hearts. And if we wander, the fault is our own. It is because we have not meditated and faithfully followed the Word of God, and the God of the Word. You see, friends, this is is the pathway to holiness, and this is the pathway to faithfulness. I will not go astray. I will not wander from your precepts. For 40 years, that has been our joy. 
as we've watched one another be faithful to God. And for 40 years, it's also been our sorrow as we have watched people drift away, not from the church, but drift away from Christ. In all honesty, I find it tremendously difficult. I used to keep a stack of old church directories in a drawer behind my desk, and every once in a while I'd pull them out. I can hardly do it. It just makes me weep as I see people who have faced oppression and they've wandered away. They've left Christ. They've left the truth. No, my friend, there is no greater joy than seeing spiritual children walking in the truth. Stay in the truth. This word is a guide to light your pathway. There's a a fourth circumstance, a fourth time when we should be faithful to God's Word. We should be faithful in moral questions. We should be faithful in circumstantial trials. We should be faithful in relational persecution. We should be faithful, fourth of all, when we have God's inheritance. When you have God's inheritance, be faithful to God's Word. Notice this last circumstance. He says, I've inherited your testimonies forever. That word inheritance is used typically in the Old Testament to refer to the inheritance that the nation of Israel received as a, as a result of the covenantal promise of God. So, so they received the inheritance of the land of Canaan, and they moved there, and the nation of Israel was established there. It was grace to them by God. But, but not everybody received a land inheritance. Numbers chapter 18 tells us, verse 20, The Lord said to Aaron, not just Aaron, but all those who would come from Aaron, the priests and the Levites, the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Aaron, you're not going to get a piece of land. But you're going to get me. And you're going to get ministry for me. And there's a sense in which the the priests and the Levites can say, we got the best deal. We don't get the land. We get God. Notice what the psalm writer says, verse 111. I have inherited your testimonies forever. I, I think... I think he's drawing an allusion back to what the priests and the Levites get. I've inherited your testimonies. I've gotten you, and I've gotten your word. And because he has received the word of God, notice what he says at the end of verse 111, they are the joy of my heart. He's, he's jubilant for Scripture. He delights in Scripture. He doesn't wait to be happy with Scripture, but but He forms His life around the Scriptures in such a way that He is purposefully, intentionally cultivating joy in Scripture. He's, He's making Himself happy in God's Word. Well, friend, do you take in the Word of God in such a way that you are learning to enjoy it and delight in it? I think I was about eight years old the first time I ate Mexican food. 
And I remember going to this restaurant. I, I, was, I was born in Canada, got to Texas as fast as I could, but, but born in Canada and, and just had no concept of Mexican food in Canada, right? So about eight years old, we, we try a Mexican restaurant, and I kind of liked the corn chips, kind of. They kind of seemed a little stale to me and hard, but they were tolerable, and I, I definitely was all in on the sopapillas. But the rest of it, I mean, seriously, why would you want to incinerate your mouth with bitterness? Well, we tried it again, and we tried it again, and we tried it again, and and now it's like if you go to my refrigerator, like 14 kinds of salsa and all these different kinds of hot sauces and spices, and it's like I can't get enough Mexican food. Well, what happened between the time I was eight and today? What happened was I fed myself on Mexican food. And for a lot of years, it really looked like I fed myself a lot on Mexican food. And I cultivated a love and a desire for Mexican food. Friends, your love for the Word of God will come when you feed yourself on this book. It doesn't just happen. He says, I've inherited your testimonies. And because I have this inheritance from you, I will take it and I will use it. I will feed on it and it will become to me the joy of my heart. Notice one last thing that he says, verse 12, 112. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes. One last time he says, I am, I am moving my heart. I am bending my heart towards obedience. I'm conforming my heart towards obedience. My heart is not naturally inclined to go that direction, but I am forcing it into a mold that will produce obedience to you. And not just, not just I'm inclining my heart to listen to your word, but notice he says I'm inclining my heart to perform your statutes. So when you lay out a statute, when you lay out a course of action, I will follow. I will do. And how long will he do this? Forever. Even to the end. Forever. Into all eternity and, as it were, to the end of eternity. This is my unwavering, resolute commitment. One commentator has said of this psalm, knowing the value of God's law as the moral guide of life, The psalmist is resolved to keep it, whatever may be the risk. He will keep it, whatever the risk. As we think about God's faithfulness to this church body and to individuals in that church body for the last 40 years, that fits. We will will keep it, whatever the risk, whatever the cost. And friends... As we think about the next 10 years and the next 20 years and the next 40 years and the next 60 years, that fits us for that as well. We will keep this word no matter the risk. Because where else are we going to go for guidance and wisdom? Will we go to Oprah? How about the Avengers? Or Facebook, Twitter, Instagram? What about Wikipedia? Will we turn to Joel Osteen? Will we turn to the church growth movement or to postmodern wisdom? Will we turn to political leaders or social justice or judicial reform? Will we look to Fox News or CNN or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times bestseller list? 
Well, we turn to intellectuals like Stephen Hawking or Marilyn Voss Savant. Well, friends, we are committed to the unfolding of the Word of God. But even more than teaching and discipling and counseling with the Scriptures, we are committed to doing the Word of God. Faithfulness to the Scriptures is not just faithfulness to teaching and hearing the Scriptures. Faithfulness is bound up in doing the Word of God. That's why one of the highest commendations, I think, in Scripture is what Paul has said about the Thessalonians. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. They received it, they heard it, and they let it do its work. They obeyed it. And friends, this stanza reminds us that this is our commitment. God's Word is His Word, and it is a faithful Word. The question is, will we remain faithful to this Word that is faithful to us? Our Father, we thank You this morning for this Word. I trust You have encouraged our hearts by it. Encourage our hearts in such a way that we are willing to follow and willing, being willing to obey and that we will be transformed by it. I'm thankful, Father, for 40 years of faithfulness. I look out and I see people who have been here for many of those 40 years. And I see the legacy of life that they are leaving through their faithful walking with You in this Word. Father, would You help us to set a trajectory that maintains this faithfulness? For the, the issue before us is You are faithful. Will we, by the Spirit of God who uses this Word, be faithful to You? Would you compel us? Would you equip us? Would you give us resoluteness to follow you? We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.